listen, I do hope after eight weeks, you will allow me a few more minutes this morning, won't you? No, I, I, I'm serious. I hope you will. And if you're visiting with us, understand, I've not done this for eight weeks, so I'm ready to do this, okay? So you may get a little extra this morning than what you're accustomed to. So just uh, be forewarned, okay? Uh, boy, it's nice to be in one service, too, in the singing. Wow, how wonderful that is. Uh, you know, one thing I've never been able to figure out, uh, and I was talking to Pastor John Caswell over at Providence Baptist in, in uh, Harrisburg, he said, Scott, the same thing is true of us, and I've never been able to understand it, but we both agreed every year you can track attendance through the year, and September and October are our low attendance months every year. You wouldn't think that, but it is September and October. So maybe we need to do this a little longer. I've enjoyed the singing today. But anyway, uh, we do, as I mentioned in my prayer, we do want to pray for Marie Glover. Uh, Lynn was in process passing a kidney stone this week. He's been having a lot of chest pains, been to the hospital, from what I understand, numerous times. They've checked his heart out, did stress tests everything with his heart they said you're fine your heart's fine last night he experienced chest pains uh he collapsed at home she called 911 he did pass away at the hospital about 12:30 this morning i'm going around to see them this afternoon have no idea yet what arrangements will be until after i meet with them but please pray for uh marie uh I do hope this morning you got the study notes out in the lobby uh, because I've left some resources for you on, on those study notes that I hope you will take advantage of. Please take advantage of some of those resources as you turn the page over and look on the back. Uh, some, uh, some different Books I've recommended, some websites and things of that nature that I think you will be blessed by. I'm planning on starting a series uh, either next week or maybe the week after, depending on the school system, if next weekend's good or not, or if a lot of people will be out one last weekend. I'll talk to the staff about that. Starting on Hebrews, uh, Christ is better Christ is the best, but why do I use the word better? Because it's the word the book of Hebrews uses. He's better than anything that we could give our devotion to. So we're going to be looking at uh, Hebrews and the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things. All across the front here, I've left you a pretty extensive introduction to the letter. Okay? Uh, might be a little heavy for some. I hope you'll chew on it anyway. Uh, it's something I hope you'll keep handy throughout the series on Hebrews. Pick that up today. If we run out today, email me here at the church and I'll send a, a link to you to where you can, uh, uh, I'll copy that, scan them. Well, I've already scanned them into my email so I can just forward them to anybody and you can print them off on your printer at home if we run out and I'll have more copies uh, available. So please take advantage of that because I think it'll help you understand uh, the book a little bit better. And then on Wednesday nights in a couple of weeks, we're going to be starting a series along with our Wednesday night prayer time. We're going to be starting a series in the book of Genesis where it all begins. And so I hope you will join me for that uh, as well. Folks, what a delight to be back in the pulpit after eight weeks out. And I sincerely mean that because ministering the Word of God is one of the greatest privileges that I have. I get paid to study the Bible. It just doesn't get any better than that, does it? Uh, the time away was wonderful. I can only think of two times in the past 30 years that I've even taken two weeks uh, together. And that's when we went to the West Coast in 08 and then about five years ago when we went to Israel. 
I can't even think of a time in the past 30, 35 years that I've even taken two weeks. So eight weeks was absolutely wonderful. And I've been asked what all uh, did we do. I was able to get some awesome study time in. Uh, getting ready to go with, again, Hebrews and, and Genesis and then the Psalms after that. Uh, on top of studying for these series here about a month before my sabbatical began, uh, when I called Dr. David Horton at Fruitland Bible College to see if he would come in July and preach for us, which he did. You enjoyed that. Some of you have told me as he preached out of Revelation 5. When I called him to see if he would come and preach, he said, I've been meaning to call you anyway, Scott. And I said, yeah. I said, David, I think you've gotten a phone call from one of our church members, haven't you? And he said, I have. And he said, I actually want to talk about that uh, to you. Uh, Fruitland has a very limited budget, and so they use pastors around the state. Some of the pastors, you would know their names. He said, this fall, one class per week, uh, one two-hour class in theology. We need you to come and teach a course in theology. And so uh, planning on doing that, one class a week, one, one morning a week. So looking really forward to that and been getting ready uh, for that. And of course, we've been enjoying that grandbaby too. Have you seen my grandbaby? <laughs> and you know, the, the peach fuzz on his head, imagine this, coming to church and finding out that Kevin Seeger has the same peach fuzz on, <laughs> on his face. But anyway, <laughs> you know, many of you indicate that when you get to heaven, there are some questions that you have for God. Well, I've got one now too. God, why can't we just skip the kids and go straight to the grandkids? <laughs> right? Right, Melinda? Melinda's, where's Melinda this morning? Oh, over there. <laughs> uh, I also told you that I planned to revisit the gym again. I did that. I walked in and I canceled my membership. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and we got some projects done around the house that we've been meaning to do for probably 10 years. Now more to the point today. Each week as we were gone, we would go to a church to see what others are doing that I might could learn from. One church we went to twice because we were so incredibly blessed by it. One Sunday we were checking out of our place at the beach so we didn't get to go. But what that means is out of eight weeks we were able uh, to go to six different churches. And I would say to you this morning the experience was 50-50. Tremendously blessed by three churches. Somewhat concerned and you might could say even grieved by three others. I want you to understand something with me this morning. With each church I tried to look at the service through gospel lens. Didn't make judgments on human preferences. You know, unfortunately, when people visit around or attend a, a, a church, they, they might evaluate a church or judge a church based on preferences. They, they like the music, they don't like the music. They like the building and the campus or they don't like the building and the campus. Uh, the preacher was dynamic or he wasn't dynamic or he was funny or he wasn't funny enough. They judge by all kinds of preferences and I would suggest to you this morning that is not the way to evaluate a church ministry rather the way to evaluate a church and their worship services through gospel lens did they do what the New Testament prescribes and were they faithful to the content of the word of God 
You see, folks, it matters what we believe and it matters what we do and don't do in worship. We are not free to do whatever we please. There was Moses up on the mountain receiving a word from God, receiving the Ten Commandments, and there were the people down below worshiping a God of their own making, the golden calf, and because they were led by Aaron, a man of God, I guess they thought it had legitimacy, but it didn't. And the result was that God was angry and God judged them and a number of them fell in death and a number of them fell sick. You say, Scott, but that's the Old Testament. Well, think about the church in the New Testament, the church of Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul points out that God was not pleased with their worship services, specifically when it came to their observance of the Lord's Supper. They were mishandling their worship On those occasions. And Paul said that's why some of you are sick and some have died. You see it matters what we do in worship. Jesus said the Father is looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. It matters what we do and what we don't do. Even fervency and passion and heart alone are not enough. The prophets of Baal were dancing around and cutting themselves and crying. They were certainly passionate. And they had heart. But they were dead wrong. And God didn't come down. God didn't respond. Not until Elijah properly approached the true and the living God in spirit and in truth. And then God came down and answered by fire. God looks for true worship for he alone is the true and the living God. And so what I'm saying to you is don't evaluate based on human preferences, likes and dislikes and desires because God is looking for something else. And so what in the world are we to do? Well, for centuries, most churches that have held to a high view of the inspiration of Scripture use what is referred to as the regulative principle. Other churches desiring to do a little more what they want to do, they tend to use the normative principle. And there's a huge difference. You see, the normative principle says we will do whatever we want to do as long as the Word of God doesn't expressly forbid it. In other words, we could have Kevin Knight dance across the stage in a pink tutu. But but would anybody really want to see that and would that be worship? By the way, if you want to see that, you need serious therapy. The regulative principle, on the other hand, says we will do what Scripture prescribes. Well, what does Scripture prescribe? For answers to that question, we we have to turn to books like 1 Corinthians, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, and Hebrews. All of those books, and more of course, but all those books in the New Testament tell us a little something about public worship. For instance, they tell us that prayer is to be a part of public worship. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says that when the church meets together, prayer is to be given an absolute priority place. It's not some minor little tack on. Jesus said that his father's house is to be known as a house of prayer. The New Testament also says that there is to be the public reading of Scripture as a part of worship. This was important back then because so few had copies of the Scripture. Today we have copies but still few read it on a regular basis. And so in public worship may be the only time they're exposed to the Word of God. Then there are to be affirmations of faith. An early one, Jesus is Lord. 
Those were used in New Testament worship. It's believed also creedal statements like we find in the Christ hymn in Philippians chapter 2 and Paul's words and in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that those were used, those were recited in, in public worship. Then we're told there's the preaching of the word of God. Paul held that up as one of the essential aspects of worship. We're told to practice the ordinances. We're also told to sing to one another in hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. And there is to be the constant giving of thanks. And so prayer, reading, affirmations of faith, sermons, singing, ordinances, thanksgiving. These are all some of the things that the New Testament prescribes for public worship. The Old Testament, by the way, prescribes some of the same things. For instance, in the great worship passages in the Old Testament, we see choirs and worship leaders. We see a wooden podium for for preaching the word like in the book of Nehemiah. And we see the preaching of the word of God being defined as reading the scripture and then giving the sense of the meaning of it. Again, we see prayer. We see people calling out together great statements of faith. In short, we see things very similar to what we also see in the New Testament. Now the emphasis in the Old Testament, of course, we see greater detail and emphasis being given to the place of worship, to the furnishings and the utensils and and things of that nature, which were all designed to show the people that everything about approaching God was to be considered a very sacred and a very holy thing. What we do here is different from the mundane and the ordinary in everyday life. Well, in the New Testament, the, sh- uh, the shift uh, changes. The emphasis changes to the condition of the people of God being holy because the New Testament points out we are God's temple. What all this means as we look at the New Testament is that we are to evaluate public worship services by fidelity to those things prescribed. In God's word. Folks it's all based on the fact that God has the right to determine what he demands in worship. It's his call. It's not ours. Let's take a little peek inside the life of the early church. I hope you have already found Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 beginning in verse 41 and we're going to read this passage and then pray and we're going to get underway with the message. So would you stand please for the reading of God's word. In verse 41 Luke writes, So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers and all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Lord, speak to us. Thank you that you are a God who reveals himself to his people Lord if you didn't we would have no hope of knowing you I pray for those this morning who do not know you that you might use something said here today to prick their hearts Lord strengthen your people And Lord, prepare us for mission every day in our lives. May we open our eyes and open our ears to the people around us, to the events and opportunities around us that you give us to be salt and light. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.
both in character and in commission, the church of Acts stands out as a model to us today. And we see here why. Luke gives approximately nine summary accounts of the life of the early church. Usually these summary accounts happen right after some major event in the life of the church. And it's like Luke pushes the pause button a minute and then he writes a little summary on, okay, here's what's going on in the church to this date. And then he continues on with the narrative after that. This summary account happens right after the day of Pentecost. Now what we see here are beliefs, Character issues and practices that make for a New Testament church. And these are the same things that need to be present in us today. So what is it that made this early church such a powerful witness to their world? Well, we see first of all that they were a converted church. Read with me again verse 41. Luke says, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So who is the church? The church is made up of the redeemed. In our hearts, the Holy Spirit has quickened us. He's convicted us. He's drawn us to faith in Jesus Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but he's made us alive together with Christ. We're new creations in Christ. That's the church. We are the people of God that God has called out of the world and he's changed us by the power of his spirit and the power of his word. Now the church is universal in its scope. It's made up of believers all over the world, but the church is local in its expression. We can't fellowship with those all over the world, but we can fellowship with those in our local surroundings. Now I want you to remember the context here in Acts chapter 2. It was the day of Pentecost, as I've just mentioned. The people had a question about what was going on because they they saw all of these events taking place and they thought the apostles and and those early believers that we read about in Acts chapter 1, they thought all of them were drunk. And so Peter gets up and he preaches a a, a great sermon and in that sermon he focuses on on the person of Jesus Christ, specifically his death, burial, and resurrection. And how he is the promised Messiah. Verse 37, the close of the sermon, there was conviction, there was the invitation given. And verses 38 to 40 uh, tell us that Peter walked them through an appropriate response to the gospel. And then we're told that 3,000 received the message. And the word has the idea of embracing it as your very own. And so this is the first thing we notice about this early church. It was made up of those who received the message of the gospel, who had repented and placed their faith in Christ. Folks, this is very important to see. You do not become a a true member of the church simply by being baptized, either as an infant or an adult, or going through confirmation or being told that you're a Christian. It is God's work of the new birth in you and you respond with repentance and faith the Bible says faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God those who responded responded to Peter's preaching of the word we know that not everybody will respond but those who do do so because the spirit of the living God has quickened them and drawn them to faith in Jesus Christ and converted them they're born again Now, folks, I emphasize that because sometimes you will run into people today that will say, I have always been a Christian. No, you haven't. 
You haven't always been a Christian. If you are a Christian, it is because at some point you have been saved. Folks, this is very important to see. The church is made up of those who have been redeemed, those who have been born again. The spiritual birth from above has happened. That birth that Jesus spoke to Nicodemus about. He was Nicodemus, a leader, one of the main leaders in Jerusalem. And yet he comes to Jesus by night and Jesus looked at him and said, Nicodemus, unless a man be born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. And and Nicodemus was puzzled by that. Lord, how can something like that happen? Can I somehow or another re-enter my mother and be born all over again? And Jesus then went on to explain to him, it's a spiritual birth from above. Nicodemus didn't understand that and tragically many today don't understand that. But folks, let me say to you, there can be no substitute for the new birth. You must be converted. You have to be converted where you're changed from the inside out. Religion tries to hopelessly change somebody from the outside in. Jesus changes somebody from the inside out. There are definite marks of conversion. You love the word of God. You love the work of God. You love the people of God. And your life bears fruit that points to Christ and the activity of the Holy Spirit. Now folks, while all of these things are present in different degrees and people largely having to do with their maturity and how well they've been discipled, nonetheless, nobody has the right to call themselves a Christian if they do not bear the mark. Parts of conversion. You're not a Christian just because you say you are. Jesus said, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, and I'll say to them, Depart from me. I never knew you. You must be born again, you must be converted. This was the converted church. Now other people say, Pastor, is church membership really that important? Is it in the Bible? I think the answer to that question is yes. There's every indication in the New Testament that membership was a very real thing. For instance, Paul told the church at Corinth that they were to expel the immoral brother. How can you expel somebody who is not some kind of member of your organization? I mean, you've got to belong to something before you can be expelled from it. Also, we see accountability for one another in the New Testament. All of these things assume some type of formalized grouping, even though we're not told extensively about it. But just like God gave you a biological family, God gives you a spiritual family. In his sovereign will, God has determined that believers are not to flounder on their own out in the world, but but they're to be a part of a cooperative assembly who together we give glory to God and we're on mission with God. Folks, this is a serious enough issue that, that it would certainly appear in the New Testament that to refuse to be a regular part of a church fellowship was actually to directly live in disobedience to God. Hebrews 10 says we're to be consistent, we're to meet together, we're to stir one another up to love and good deeds and we're to do all the more of this as we see the day of Christ approaching. My point is that the church and participation in the church is very biblical. And remember Jesus said, I will build my church. It's the only thing on earth that Jesus promised that he would build. And so the church is God's invention. It's not man's. It's not mine. It's not yours. It's not anybody else's. It's God's. And it's God's plan that that we belong to him and to one another. And all of that begins with this event known as the new birth conversion. 3,000 that day came into the church. 
Second thing we see about them is they were a devoted church. Read on with me in verse 42. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. It shows an ongoing process. There are four things that they were continually giving themselves to. And the first thing was, notice what he says, the apostles' teaching. Now, folks, Jesus had spent three years with his disciples. We know that there's a lot that he taught them that doesn't show up in the Gospels because the Gospel accounts can be read in in just a matter of hours. And yet Jesus spent three years with them. And so we have to conclude much of what shows up in the rest of the New Testament is what Jesus taught them. And the Bible says that these early believers were continually devoting themselves to that teaching, to that doctrine, to the apostles' doctrine, because again, this is the instruction they had received from Christ. I want you to notice that that doctrine came first. It always comes first. Precept comes before practice. Experience must always be tested by doctrine and never doctrine by experience. They were Bible-based. Folks, when you come to church, I think you ought to hear what the Bible says. Billy Graham always said, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. That's how it ought to be in church. You would think it would be. It's not always the case. But it's amazing in First and Second Timothy, the emphasis Paul gave to, to Timothy on keeping the focus on God's word. In First Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, he says, Timothy, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. In chapter 4, verse 16, he says, pay, a, pay close attention to yourself and your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says, Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure that's been entrusted to you. In 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul said, And the things that you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And of course, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he said, Timothy preached the word. Be instant in season and out of season. When it's convenient and when it's not. Folks, Christianity is built on the gospel. We stand on the apostles' teaching. I think of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. You see, folks, I I know I'm stating the obvious, but we are not Muslim, we are not Hindu, we're not New Age, we're not anything else. We are Christian. There is a body of truth that is the basis for Christian doctrine. This means when you attend church, you ought to hear a distinct message that is Christian and that centers on Jesus Christ. I had a fellow pastor tell me one time, He went to a funeral at a church, a church only about a half hour from here, maybe 40, 45 minutes away from here. And and they, they had the reputation in the community, even among some lay people, that they had abandoned the gospel. And he went to a church service there and he told me, he said, Scott, there was nothing about Jesus. There was nothing distinctive about the the Christian faith in that service. There was nothing about forgiveness of sins and hope of eternal life through him. He said, in fact, it was a service that a Muslim or a Hindu or even an atheist could have got up and done. Folks, what a sad tragedy. And that was the church that in its name had the word Baptist. 
Jude says in Jude 3 that we need to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so there's a very distinct body of Christian doctrine. And that, in, that, that implies that truth matters contrary to what many people will try to tell you today. The, the, the basic, the basic orthodox truths of Christianity... Up until, say, the 19th century have always been considered to be the inerrancy of Scripture. Meaning, meaning without error in the original autographs. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ. The substitutionary atonement of Christ. 1 Peter 3.18 says, The just died for the unjust that he might bring us to God. Isaiah 53 says, He laid on him the iniquity of us all. Substitutionary atonement. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. The second coming of Christ. Those five things again until the 19th century weren't even questioned hardly. And and it's hard to see how a place could even call itself Christian if it didn't affirm those five basic doctrines. Folks, we are in a battle for truth today. We need to open our eyes. In post-modernity, it's usually held that there is no truth, there are no absolutes. I I shared with the group this past Wednesday night. I hope you'll get the book. It's been out quite a number of years now. If you don't read it, it makes a great doorstop. It's probably about a thousand pages long. Uh, The Gagging of God by Dr. D.A. Carson. Probably D.A. Carson along with Al Mohler. I think it's probably not an exaggeration to say that those two fellas are probably the intellectual leaders in evangelical Christianity today in our generation. But he wrote in that book about three different kinds of pluralism that we're facing today. The first two are not necessarily bad. It was, it's the third one. Uh, the, the first one, though, is an empirical pluralism, just meaning that we're more diverse today than we've ever been in society. No judgment, good or bad, on that. We're just more diverse a, as a culture today. About three or four years ago, they said in the Charlotte school system that 500 languages are now spoken in the Charlotte school system. Unbelievable. I couldn't even tell you 500 languages. But it it just means we're more diverse. Empirical pluralism. Neither good or bad judgment. For the church, folks, it, it means that God's bringing the world to us. Then there's cherished pluralism. This is the celebration of the fact that we're more diverse. Again, no attempts here, as Carson says, to do anything about it. Cherished pluralism says just celebrate the fact that we're more diverse. And as the church, as as Christians, hey, we have greater opportunity than ever before all around us. But the big one is philosophical pluralism. This is the battlefield of different worldviews at a postmodern age some people find no contradiction in holding to separate belief systems or competing belief systems sometimes systems or ideas that are even in conflict with one another and the craziness in a postmodern age says this is okay But how can you hold to or embrace opposing world systems without calling one of them right and wrong? Or maybe you need to call both of them uh, wrong and embrace still another. But you see, in in modernism, the, the best system won through debates. You could have debates and make your point. In postmodernism, you're not supposed to call anybody's ideas wrong. Carson makes the astounding point that philosophical pluralism is probably the greatest challenge to the church that the church has faced since first and second century Gnosticism. To live in this culture in which we do as As believers, folks, we need to be committed to the apostles' doctrine. The early church was committed to the apostles' doctrine. In fact, 
In 2 Timothy 2, Paul called out a couple of individuals by name. How would you like to have your name like this recorded through all of history? He called these two men out by name who had deviated from the truth. And he warned Timothy about these two men. Hymenaeus and Philetus. The pastor of Charlotte's largest church. I, I didn't believe this. Kevin Seeger told me. till I went online and I had to hear it for myself. The pastor of Charlotte's largest church has said to his people. If they desire a church where there is doctrine. Then they need to find another church. He said you've got more than 700 other churches in the Charlotte area you can go to. Now folks what a foolish statement. Maybe he would do well to study doctrine because he told his people in a sermon that God sinned. That God broke his own law. Now I'm using the S word sin. He, did, he, he, used, he said God broke his own law. Now breaking your own law, what's that called? Sin. God sinned against, God transgressed his own law for the sake of love in sending Jesus. I'm not quite sure what he meant exactly by that. But you know something? I'd flip that statement around. And I'd say actually for the sake of love, God kept the law. He kept the law. He sent his son who came not to destroy the law, but what? To fulfill the law so that he could go to the cross and die in your place for your sin. Had God broken the law and become a sinner, he couldn't have offered a sin sacrifice. And so you and I would be in deep trouble today. So maybe there's a pastor who could benefit himself from some doctrine so he wouldn't teach his people outright heresy. Folks, doctrine is important. Authentic Christianity depends upon God's revelation. Paul said to the Galatians, if somebody comes to you preaching some other gospel that's not the gospel that we preached, let them be, what? Anathema, let them be accursed. In Jeremiah, God chastened his people because they no longer took pleasure in the word of God and they would not listen to the word of God. And and so God said through Jeremiah, the prophets prophesy falsely and my people love it so. Can I ask you this morning, what are you personally doing to be grounded in biblical doctrine in this age in which we live? You know, we have so many great resources out there today. We're we're really without excuse, aren't we? For starters, for starters, Kevin Knight has the youth studying the doctrinal section at the back of the ESV study Bible. That's a great place to start for anybody. And it would give parents a continuity of what he's doing with your youth. It's basic, but it's probably the best section on doctrine that I've ever seen in a study Bible. Also, where does doctrine come from? It comes from the scripture itself. Folks, think about that with me for a moment, would you? We, as, as believers, you and I, we have one book to master. One. Now, of course, there's 66 books in that one. But one book to master. One. Can we not do a little better with the one book that God has given us? What kind of student of the word are you? Doctrine. In the ESV study Bible, it, it, it points out at the beginning of that section on, on doctrine. If you, if you have the ESV study Bible right now, it's on page 2505, 2505. One of the opening statements, he, he makes the point in it 
that a right, a proper and growing relationship with God is dependent on proper belief about God. So what are, what are you doing about equipping yourself? This early church, folks, they equipped themselves. Over and over and over again, they were diligent about it. It matters. They also devoted themselves to the fellowship. The Greek word here is koinonia. We need to understand that koinonia is so much more than enjoying coffee and donuts together. Boy, we love doing nothing wrong with that. I love coffee and donuts. Koinonia is a bond of friendship and love and caring that's brought about by the Holy Spirit. Our fellowship is based on the fellowship between the the members of the Trinity. Jesus prayed in John 17 that his followers would be one as he and the Father are one. This means that, that where there is division in the body, where there is gossip or slander or mistreatment of fellow Christians in, in the body, it's as though it is done to Christ. That's one of the reasons the Lord told the people at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 3, He said, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If someone destroys God's temple... God will destroy him for God's temple is holy which is what you are. Wow. So if you're someone who in some way is compromising or damaging the fellowship of God's church you need to step back and you need to realize the severity of what you're doing. Fellowship extends beyond the shaking of hands for 15 seconds when we greet one another. I love doing that. Not not complaining about that. I'm just saying fellowship goes beyond that. It's seen in broader ways in the Bible. And the, the New Testament says young men are to treat older men with respect. Older men are to be a model of faith to the body. We're to treat older women as mothers and younger women as sisters. We're to look after widows and orphans. And, and we're told that we're to honor and respect our leaders who keep watch over our souls. And even obey your leaders in the Lord. Folks, all of these are commands in the New Testament that have to do with the relationship aspects of fellowship. One of the reasons why early Christianity spread like wildfire, the the world saw how they were bonded together with one another. And Jesus said in John 13, all the world will know that, that you're my disciples if you love one another. The early church cared for each other, shared with each other, ministered to one another. I mentioned Hebrews 10 a moment ago. And it it commands us that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some. He says we're to be committed to the fellowship. Every believer is to find a church home where they can join and support that church home. And link up with other believers that you can pray for and learn together, study together and go out on mission together with in what ways are you adding to the fellowship of this church that begins with attending regularly we're told that active church attendance now is defined as coming one Sunday morning a month folks that is not active church attendance these people met daily Find a group to be a part of. It also involves repentance on your part if you're damaging the fellowship in any way. Again, it's Christ's body and whatever we do to one another, we do unto Him. They were committed to the breaking of bread, the definite article with bread. 
the bread. Probably, a, no doubt, a reference to the Lord's Supper. Companion to baptism. Baptism emphasizes our death. The Lord's Supper emphasizes Jesus' death. They were devoted to the ordinances. Folks, the ordinances preach the gospel. When we preach the gospel, the gospel is heard. When we practice the ordinances, the gospel is seen. They go together and complement one another. I'm almost, I'm, I'm almost done. Really am. Almost done. They were committed to prayer. Wow, look at this. Every great movement of God that I'm aware of began in prayer. Nothing significant in God's kingdom will take place apart from prayer. The church in the book of Acts always spoke to God about men before they went out and spoke to men about God. Jesus said in Luke 18 that we are to persist in prayer like that little widow that he gave the example of in that parable that would not give up. Jesus said that his father's house is to be a house of prayer. In some of the churches that we visited, I was absolutely shocked and amazed and grieved to see services that would open, that would continue all the way through the service to the end and and dismiss the people. And there was virtually no prayer in them whatsoever. Three of them were like that. Now, folks, again, we, we saw some wonderful examples that were blessings. I want to emphasize that. But I was grieved by three. The lack of Scripture, the lack of prayer, the extent that one pastor went to in his sermon, the first half of his sermon, wonderful. Second half of his sermon, I was amazed to the degree at which he twisted the Scripture. Now, I'm not talking about somebody, you know, all of us, we're studying, communicating. We might fall short in something, not quite cover something the way it ought to be covered. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about twisting the Scripture. Connie kind of elbowed me. Men, you know what it is to get that wife's elbow? She said, Scott, that's not what that passage is saying at all. I said, I know, I know. This came out of one of our main churches. I, I, was, I was shocked. I made a vow. Prayer is going to be more a part of our services. Because folks, we desperately need God. You can take any one of us out of here, me or another staff member, a deacon, a teacher, any. You can take any of us out of here. And guess what? You'll be just fine. Any of us. But we can't take God out of here. We need Him. We need to cry out to him in desperation. Do we think we, meet, we need him today somehow less than they did in previous generations? If you don't want more scripture and more prayer to be a part of your worship services, then I tell you what you need to do. You need to fire me today. I am, I am, I am dead serious. Public reading of scripture and prayer is going to be more of a part of our services. Luke goes on in verse 43 to report that signs were done. Some try to continue today to make that a mark of the church. But what does it say? It says these signs and wonders were done by the apostles. And folks, there are no apostles today, okay? 
Hebrews 2 verses 3 and 4 seems to point out pretty clearly that the signs and wonders were done by the apostles to confirm the gospel message which was brand new and that even by the time of the writing of Hebrews, probably in the mid-60s, these signs had already begun to fade into the background. Now, it's not a question of if God could repeat that today. Of course he could if he desired to do so. After all, he's God. But to try to make this a norm for each and every period of church history would simply be to treat this passage falsely. Signs and wonders went along with the age of the apostles. I'm going to hurry here. I'm not going to go much into this. They were a loving church. They were a loving church. They saw needs. What'd they do? They'd sell what they had to contribute to those needs. And the tense of the verbs here means that anytime they saw a need, even if they had to sell something to meet that need, they'd do so. This passage has tried to be used at certain times to to maybe endorse something like, communism. That is not what this passage is. It's not talking about a forced surrender of property. Voluntary. As they saw needs they gave. By the way folks they didn't sell everything because later in the passage it says they were going from what? From house to house. They didn't give up all of their property. They they just loved one another to such an extent and their resources were so low that if they needed to give up something they had to meet a need in in the fellowship they would do it. That's how much they cared for one another. They were a loving fellowship. Now the Bible says as believers we're all to be responsible. We're to to work. Paul said to one church, if you won't work, you don't eat. So we're to be responsible. But if there are legitimate needs among our brothers and sisters in Christ, we're to do something about it. A loving fellowship. And then lastly, we see in verse 47, they were a growing church. God was adding to this church. The world sat up and took notice. God blessed a healthy church. Now, folks, I want to say to you, numbers in and of themselves alone don't necessarily show a sign of God's blessing. In fact, if numbers alone showed a sign of God's blessing, then we would have to say God's blessing must be on some of the cults, the way some of the cults are growing. Numbers alone aren't a sign of God's blessing. But numbers were a sign of blessing to this church. You know why? Because we're told so. We're told right here. God blessed them. Now, let me wrap things up by saying, and thank you for giving me extra time this morning. I mean that. And I I won't take this in the future, okay? Why are you laughing? Sometimes, maybe. <laughs> Today we have small churches, large churches, mega churches, traditional churches, contemporary churches, language churches, country churches, city churches, almost any kind of church you could think of, and then some you probably couldn't think of. Regardless of how we might describe the church in terms of its Music, its size, its culture, its style. Folks, what's God looking for? God is looking for a faithful church. A church who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And I remind you again, it is God who has the right to define what true worship is to be and what it's not. What are you doing to be a part of that here? You remember the thing, kids, here's here's the church. There's the steeple. Open the doors and there's the people. Is is that good theology? No. Because it says, here's the church, there's the steeple. There's the church, there's the steeple. Open the doors and there's the people. Folks, the people are the church. 
You're the temple of the living God. And God's temple is to be holy. Some of you need to be converted. There's not a doubt in my mind that there are people in this church that need to be converted. Not a doubt in my mind. Any of our pastors this week, today, this week, will be available to talk to you, pray with you about that. Folks, conversion is more than simply signing a commitment card, walking an aisle, doing something. It's more than that. Have you been born again? Perhaps you're looking for a church home. No church is perfect this side of of heaven. It's not our goal to be perfect in the eyes of men. It is our goal to give glory to God and to be faithful with what He has called us to do. Do you want to be a part of a church like that? Talk to us. We'd love to have you a part of this fellowship. Will you commit yourself today anew and afresh to offering a continuing witness of the Word of God? Be devoted to the Word of God and be devoted to one another. Commit yourself to the fellowship of the church, remembering everything you do. You're doing it as unto Christ. And pray for this church. Pray for me, your other staff, your deacons, your Sunday school teachers. Pray for one another. James reminds us that the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Would you?